Thank you for listening to this talk produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. Welcome, everybody. So lovely to see so many of you here. Thank you for waiting so patiently. My name is Tracy Locke, and I'm the Curator of Australian Art here at the Art Gallery of South Australia. And I'm also the curator of this exhibition, Clarice Beckett, The Present Moment. It seems very much of the moment, given the response to the exhibition, which really has been very humbling, but at the same time, very exciting. My topic today, this is the third lunchtime talk that I've given in the exhibition. And my topic today is is about the subject of Clarice Beckett's pursuit of the illusion of reality on a two-dimensional plane. It's a big topic, but um, I'm just going to go into it and, and see, see we, how we go. But what I would like to begin with is I would like to read to you one of the only known statements that we have that we know she said for sure and it's about this illusion of realities. In 1923 Clarice had to provide a statement for an exhibition catalogue in Melbourne for the Melbourne 20 painters and she said her aims were to give a sincere and truthful representation of a portion of the beauty of nature and to show the charm of light and shade, which I try to give forth in correct tones so as to give as nearly as possible an exact illusion of reality. Now, in my essay for the book, I actually argue or question exactly what reality is she referring to? And if we get time, I, I might touch on that in a minute. But I wanted to draw your attention to the fact that this entire exhibition and the fact that Dr. Rosalind Hollenrake today, who is 83 years of age, has spent 50 years of her life dedicated to piecing together the fragments of Clarice Beckett's life and art. And you know what? we still don't know very much. So that one statement I have just read to you is precious indeed. It's such a rare statement of her own voice. So today what I'm going to explore with you is why, why do we think that she was interested in trying to pursue this idea of an illusion of reality? And also I'll explore a little bit about how she did that and go into some of the techniques. So I guess to really what I've, I've aimed to do as the curator of this exhibition is, is lift Clarice Beckett up from really being regarded up until now as a modern woman artist who painted really beautiful paintings and who she painted modern motifs, you know, she painted the telegraph pole, the bitumen road and cars and things, motifs that other artists weren't interested in at all. And so she's been celebrated for that. The point of this exhibition, however, is to say, well, wait a minute. Clarice Beckett was actually engaging in 
international art trends and ideas, despite the fact she never left Victoria. She didn't travel. So if we think of those really famous modern Australian women artists like Margaret Preston, Grace Cossington-Smith or Grace Crowley, and they go on and on, Dorrit Black, they all had wealth and they travelled a lot. But Clarice Beckett never travelled. She never left Victoria, but she was regarded as by Gino Nibby, who was a bookshop owner in Melbourne. She was regarded as Melbourne's best read woman. So she was reading and she was up to date with really uh, the latest ideas circulating around the world, even scientific ideas, psychoanalysis, Freudian ideas, everything. She was absorbing it all. But what was happening around the world when we think about 1914? First World War, in it comes, rolls in. And across the world, artists, a, a phenomenon, if you like, occurred across Europe and America, and of course here in Australia, where artists participated in what was referred to as a return to order. And many of you will know, at the turn of the century prior to the war, the Western art tradition really collapsed at the centre in Paris, and visual representation disintegrated. And then, uh, you know, you had all your isms occur, you know, um, fauvism, dadaism, and so forth. And then when the First World War hit, it was a shock. And many people couldn't believe that they were going to be met with such destruction and horror. And so artists, as I said, changed their way of practicing and they became very interested in older traditions. If you think about Picasso in the early 1920s, he starts to produce these very calm, classical portraits uh, referring to the traditions of Greece and Rome. Other Cubists, for example, they did a, what was called a return to the soil. They left all the cities and they journeyed to the countryside to do uh, or to kind of experience a sense of regeneration, to try and have some time for introspection. It was a time for healing and retreat and returning to traditions. So this idea that Clarice Beckett here, you know, working away in Melbourne, wants to paint the illusion of something and make it very realistic is a way of returning to a tradition, returning to an order. So it is in fact very modern, if you like, with what she's doing. The trick and what I talk about, the tripwire has been about Clarice Beckett's work is on first glance, some of her work looks very conservative and traditional. Yes, it is, but she's actually exploring optical ideas. And those optical ideas are absolutely fascinating. So there she is in Melbourne. I'll take you back. She is living at this point, I'm talking around 1916, 1917, she's living in Bendigo. She just finished three years of study with Frederick McCubbin at the National Gallery School. She studied for three solid years how to draw. After three years, she was then invited to do another year of study. It was quite a big deal. She was invited to study painting. 
She didn't want to study painting at the National Gallery School with an artist by the name of Bernard Hall because he was teaching a very conservative form of painting. He was following the Munich system. It was a very stuffy and tired way of painting. But she'd been hearing about someone else in Melbourne and that person was Max Meldrum. And so rather than studying at the National Gallery School, she opted to go and study with Max Meldrum in his private art school in, in Elizabeth Street. He'd only opened his private art school in 1916. It was very new and he was starting to be kind of commented on, if you like, in the newspapers. He was becoming a little bit controversial. And when Clarice mentioned to her parents that she wanted to go and study with Max Meldrum, they weren't too sure. In fact, she had to wait until she was about 26 years of age before her parents would even allow her to study at the National Gallery School. So here she is, 29 years of age, and her mother goes to visit Max Meldrum at his studio. Clarice was always trying to seek the approval of her mother and off went Kate Beckett to visit Max Meldrum and she requested to see some of his work that he had underway and he spent time showing her his work and she said, well, you know, my daughter doesn't speak very much. My daughter's very dreamy. And he responded and he said, well, to work as an artist, you only need uh, your eyes and a brush. You do not need a tongue. <laughs> and then he said, well, she's obviously wide awake if she's chosen to come and study with me. So she was hardly dreamy. Her disposition was dreamy, but she was too, was sharp as a tack. Kate Beckett returned home and reported her experience to Clarice's father and there was a decision that yes, Max Meldrum was, despite his controversies and his love for debate and arguing, their parents decided he was actually quite the gentleman. And so Clarice with her sister, she couldn't go alone, she had her younger sister go with her and Clara studied with Max Meldrum for uh, a period of nine months in 1917. She took, she had two or three lessons a week and she took the earliest train in the morning from Bendigo into Melbourne and the last train home on those days. She found her time with Max Meldrum completely absorbing because he was producing and talking and teaching a way of painting that was radical for the time. And he did not care for teaching students how to paint. What he spoke about was teaching students how to observe, how to perceive with the eye. And he had been hard at work since he returned from 12 years in France himself. He'd studied and worked and lived in Paris and then stayed in France while he was away at the turn of the century for those 12 years, witnessing the collapse of Western art right in front of his eyes. He was working on his own formula for art. 
his own treaty, just as the modernist artist did. And so he came up with this theory. He came up with something called the scientific order of impressions theory. And he argued that his students, all they needed to do was to stand in front of their subject and receive the order of tones, the, the order of the, the tones meet their eye and record those tones, the shades of light and dark, onto their canvas. No drawing, no gridding up, no care for composition, just a very quick process of receiving those tones to the eye and then recording them on the canvas, which was a very, very different way of working. Now, Max Meldrum was very charismatic and he was delivering lectures around Mel Melbourne at the time, um, sort of trying to promote his theories and his ideas because while he was in France, what he did was he learnt about how to talk about art and how to think about representing art but also how to think about discussing art. So he was rigorous. And he published a book in 1919, by the way, that was massively influential and of which uh, Clarice Beckett, of course, um, read. But what I'm going to do is just read something to you from Max Meldrum's 1919 book, because it's very re revealing. What I was saying to you is, he, as I said, he, he wasn't interested in teaching the method of painting. He's interested in people observing nature. And so he, he came up with this idea that painting was really a science and that anyone could paint. It required no talent whatsoever, no emotion, and there was no need for any individual aspects to be involved in the painting process. But he said that this way of perceiving tones, you had to, you had to work at it. It was like a faculty, you know, you had to exercise your eye. And there was a way of developing your eye so that you became very good at this painting process. And if you can bear with me, I'd like to read to you an extract from his book. And it's kind of great because you can imagine him, uh, you know, using these particular words and so forth. But it gives you an idea of where he was coming from with his teaching and what Clara Speckett would have been absorbing with his ideas. Okay, so bear with me, I'm going to read this out. And Max Meldrum says, We find that the inexperienced eye of the beginner only defines precisely when it has arrived at small details. By the way, he says people like animal breeders are really good at looking because they notice little tiny details. He's not interested in that. He's wanting art students and painters to take in big details, observe big details by their eye. So I'll start again. Um, the inexperienced eye of the beginner only defines precisely when it has arrived at small details. For the bigger and more elementary impressions that have passed too quickly, and although they have been seen, they have not been defined. For example, look at a clump of trees against the setting sun. This is a good example right here behind me. Look at a clump of trees against the setting sun. In its elementary impression, it is defined by the eye as two masses of tone, light and dark, having certain shapes. Immediately following the eye begins to determine smaller subdivisions of tone in these two elements, such as the suggestion of clouds and like details in the sky, details of the boughs and the leaves within the tree. 
It may be noted that all artists with greater practice have acquired the speed necessary to grip the more elementary impressions at the expense of the smaller detail. So what he's saying is, if you practice, ignore the small details, just record and respond to the big details that come in, which we can see what Becker is doing all around this room. And he's really clever, Max Meldrum, because he references Rodin and Corot, Camille Corot, the, the great French landscape painter. And he writes in his book, Max Meldrum writes in his book a quote from Corot. And again, bear with me, because it will give you another pointer, if you like, of how Clarice Beckett was, was picking up information. And this is Corot. I went to Paris but learnt so little there that I could not manage even the smallest drawing. Two men would stop to chat and I would begin to sketch them bit by bit, starting with the head for instance. Then they would part and all I had on my paper was sundry bits of heads. Or children would be sitting on the steps of some church and again I would begin only for their mother to call them away. Thus, my sketchbook was filled with bits of hands, feet, feet and heads. So, I resolved for the future not to go home without having done a complete work. And for the first time, I started drawing in the mass. I set myself to take in a group at a glance, and if it stopped for a short time only, at least I had got its character, its general unconscious attitude, and if it remained, I could add more detail. I have done this very often with just a few strokes and have succeeded in catching a general impression of a ballet and its surroundings at the opera, just on a scrap of paper inside my hat. This is Corot's manner of describing what Meldrum calls the scientific order of impressions. So, this is the information Clarice Beckett is absorbing, this method of working very quickly outdoors, recording the tonal shapes that she sees, the trees, the bushes, very, very quickly. In doing so, all of the detail drops out of the composition. And she is taught by Max Meldrum not to paint what she knows, only to paint what she sees, what her eye registers. And a fantastic example, uh, really, of this is the beautiful Beaumaris seascape on the back wall just over here, to the left of the wall text. Now, that is an exact same view painted by Tom Roberts in 1887. And Tom Roberts painted, uh, titled his work, you'll know it, The Slumbering Sea Mentone. Now, when Clarice goes to paint exactly the same view as Tom Roberts uh, over thir about 38 years beforehand, her painting process of standing there and taking in the lights and the darks very quickly, all the details drop away. And I'm going to circulate for you um, an image around the audience of Tom Roberts's version of this. And you will note in the foreground, you see all the little pebbles on the foreshore and you see the woman's little 
a flower in her hair and, and all those details. But the way that Clarice was working was dropping out all that information and producing this very sincere and truthful version of what was before her eye. And in doing this painting process, according to Max Meldrum, you know, the technique was completely unconscious. Your actual painting process is unconscious and that really the whole process is driven by the kind of desire to achieve the result. So it's a cool, objective, almost conceptual way of working. So this is where it gets really interesting. This technique is very modernist. And so uh, what you get is this effect that you see around the walls here is this soft, hazy effect. All of these paintings are designed to be viewed from a distance. So the actual subject that uh, Claris, for example, in this case here has captured, she's captured by blurring her eyes to, so that the tones are received in a simplified way. And so if, again, if you look at these paintings with blurred eyes, in fact, if we look at this Beaumaris seascape, you will, with blurred eyes from a distance, and you hold your gaze on that painting, do you see how she has really captured the illusion of reality? There is a sense of air and light and space and she has achieved the effect that Max Meldrum was very much encouraging and this is, this is the effect that you could almost step into that painting with her. You can walk through that space. So this is the optical effect and her pursuit of this illusion of reality to achieve this sense of real uh, truthfulness with her depiction of light and shade and charm. So, however, the process was quite radical. So it's a kind of, appears to be a very traditional, you know, conservative thing to do, but it was the radical painting process that gave the, the very interesting optical effect of her work. Maybe I will talk a little bit about, at this point, some of the works in this room. I, this is one of my favourite rooms in the exhibition because she's focusing on those sort of crepuscular effects of, of evening and the crepuscular effects of, of twilight. And she was working again at a time when there are a whole lot of ideas pulsing around and, and absorbing ideas about science and, and certain discoveries. And we know that Einstein was approved with his, basically at this time, you know, around 1919, 1920s, the invisible world had been confirmed, you know. So artists were looking to the skies, they were looking to the horizon, and they were thinking about worlds beyond those on the earth. And we can see by this beautiful sweep of um, sunsets and, and sunset pictures that this was a subject that deeply preoccupied Clarice Beckett. She lived about 300 metres from the coastal edge where her family home at Beaumaris was. Mentone, for example, the subject I was just talking about on the other back wall here, 
Beaumaris seascape was about one kilometre from her family home. So she was able to observe again and again and give witness to the effects of the sun and the light at this time of day. And we can see how she was very interested in tracking and giving a sense of duration and time and tracking the sun disk, as you can see here in this work and here and here, but also particularly capturing that moment when the sun drops behind the horizon line and you get this backlight effect of incandescent skies. So certainly some of my favourite works are, are in this exhibition and in this particular display. On the back wall is a wonderful work called, I'll just point it out and I'll walk back again, is this work here called Tranquility. It's a, a scene of the seashore that features just down in the right of that, or just a horizontal dark band about a third the way down the composition is a, a marking which defines this work located as being at Ricketts Point, basically not far from the end of her very street. But that work is of interest to me and, and many others because we see her being faithful and recording the world in front of her in a truthful way, but in doing so, she's actually pushing the limits of representation. She, her work is it's almost abstract, almost minimal in, in its existence. But it's exactly that work, works like that, that was singled out by her father when she passed away at the age of 48 very suddenly in 1935. Very almost abstract works like that, the very experimental works that she produced were burnt on the bonfire. So the, the fact that we have this here in this exhibition to demonstrate what apparently according to others at the time was a larger body of experimental work, it's wonderful that at least we have some sense of, of where she was pushing the limits of her painting process. Another favourite of mine on these walls in this space is the work right next to that painting, the very ochery coloured work, where we see her actually turn her gaze away from the horizon and back towards the ochre cliffs. And she's capturing the effect of the warm evening sun on those cliffs and the reflection in the foreground water. What I find, and again, just none of these, what you never tire of any of these works ever, and even just observing this work right now from this distance, the way that she's captured those reflections in the water is absolutely mind-blowing. Her ability to handle paint and colour was unsurpassed. Of all of Melbourne's students, she was his best and brightest student. She also worked in a higher key than any of the other Meldrum students. A lot of the Meldrum students' works were duller and darker. She was much higher key and had the best ability to use colour. Colour is very restrained, but when she uses it, she uses it very well. And Meldrum would argue with his theories, the most important thing is to take down your tones 
and then block in your form. Colour was your last consideration. And remember, if any of you here today have ever studied art at art school or, you know, just at, in a course or something, if you've ever stood in front of a palette of a whole range of colours and just looked at it and gone, what do I do with all of these colours and how do I make colour work? Well, Meldrum encouraged his students to basically use four colours. Well, they weren't even colours. To begin with, you would start with white, black and three tones in between because then you're focusing on your subject. You're not getting distracted by, oh my God, what do I mix blue and yellow and how do I make that happen? He said he eradicated it from the process of learning to paint. So colour came later. But certainly for Beckett when it came, she was a beautiful, beautiful colourist. The sad thing was that she, as I mentioned at the beginning, she studied with him for only nine months. Ten years after uh, she had studied within 10 years, in the newspapers, they said, if only Clarice Beckett could shake off a bit of Meldrum and get into the sunlight, she might, you know, improve. This is 10 years after being with him. 14 years uh, after being with him, she was recorded in the papers as being a new and dangerous variety of Meldrumite. So it was, he was so controversial and so polarising. I mean, he really, basically his studio was like a storm cell in Melbourne. And once you were associated with him, it was very difficult to shake it off. And even though she took his techniques, his ideas and his radical way of working, she made it entirely her own. He was very nervous about painting outdoors, for example. He believed that sunlight and bright days were only any good for surfing, not any good for painting. Whereas Clarice, as you know, by going through the exhibition, you can see she embraced daylight and the sunshine and responded to it in a very, very capable way. So I guess when we come back to this idea of the one known statement by Clarice Beckett that she was seeking to create this illusion of reality, I would argue, based on some of her readings and her interest in her life, that there's very much a transcendent element in her work. And even if you're not conscious of it, I think it's fair to say when you spend time with her work, you do feel somehow moved or you do feel somehow calmed or transported in a way. And if we go back to that process that Meldrum was talking about, the process of painting was unconscious. Beckett was also reading at the time about theosophy and spirituality and philosophies and so forth. And theosophy very much encouraged the idea of observing nature, observing nature very quietly. If you do that, your sensory perceptions will enhance. So you get this kind of interesting overlay of, of Meldrum talking about observing nature and, and paint nature, and then you've got theosophy saying observe nature, sit with it for a while, and your observations will be heightened. So 
there's no doubt in my mind that this unconscious, so-called unconscious process of painting was a bit like a meditation for Beckett. She was absolutely in the moment in, during her painting process. And as Ros Hollenrake has reminded us, her painting process was like an act of self-renewal. Every time she went out to paint, every time she repeated a subject, it was though she was seeing it afresh and new. So it was a very invigorating thing for her to do. So we come back to this concept of reality. I would argue, and um, I thought I, I, well, I won't go into, <laughs> I won't go into that. But I have put forward the idea that she is touching into another realm. And that's why we've had these portals created for each space that you move through. So we get this sense that you are transported from one space to another, one reality to another. And in being so, and her work touching on these spiritual aspects, again, it was absolutely in line with everything else that was going on around the world with other modernist artists. So she was very tuned in to, to particular trends and ideas. So what I might do is leave, it, um, leave my talk at that. There's many other things, of course, you know, I could say, but the wall texts are very detailed in this exhibition, but I would love to answer some questions because inevitably, Questions are absolutely wonderful because sure enough, I've missed something or something is just not clear. I really would encourage you, if you like, to, to ask a question or, or ask me to clarify something if it's, if it's unclear. A combination of things, no, there's no watercolours. She, she didn't work in watercolours that we're aware of. And she, she was the family photographer, but there is no evidence whatsoever of her photographing any of her, her paintings, her, her subjects. She tended to work very, very quickly. She also, as the exhibition has shown, she also recorded colour notes on the spot that she then took home and worked up into bigger works, but she was known for an incredible visual memory. Her visual memory was commented on no end by her peers and colleagues, so she had incredible recall for colour. And some of the works were created very, very quickly, as I've pointed out in other talks, passing trams in the next space. In the foreground, you'll see there's two shafts of hair. Her hair is caught up in the painting process. So she's there out in the rain, in the wind, and, and, every, and even some of these works too, by the way, have sand in them. So she's very much, they're very immediate. Okay, so a great question about Clarice Beckett's palette and palette of colours. We don't know exactly what colours um, she was using, but in Meldrum's books, Meldrum published two books in 1919 and certainly his book in 1950, and he lists the traditional colours that were used by, by certain artists like cadmium red, uh, flake white, and uh, yellow ochre, I can't remember them. I did write them all down at some point, but just the traditional colours. But we don't know what particular ones, what particular ones she used. But and certainly colours, of course, at that time they were available in tubes and portable and accessible. This bridge is mentioned in the catalogue, 
and it's called View Towards Prince's Bridge. Oh, we don't know what bridge that was. In the, uh, for those of you who aren't aware, um, Clarice Beckett in 1931, her work was selected to be exhibited in New York in a, a major exhibition of Australian artists' work. And um, the evening Prince's Bridge was selected, but she would have done many, many, many versions of that painting. And we don't know which was the exact one that was chosen to go to New York, unfortunately. Yeah, it's, as I said from the very beginning, there's so many things we don't know. Catalogues have gone missing, everything's destroyed. So we don't know, we can't say. All we know is the title of the painting. We don't know which version of the bridge. Okay, well look, thank you so much for, for bearing with me and, and staying and it's been lovely to speak with you all again about Clarice Beckett. Thank you so much.